please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 17. We continue making our way through the Gospel of, of Luke. We're in Luke 17, verse 11. And so as you turn there, just a reminder that uh, next week will be our, our ministry fair. And so if you're looking for ways to joyfully uh, serve the Lord at, at Bethany Community, I encourage you to come next week. And there'll be several opportunities to look at the things that are going on, the ministries that, that God is doing through Bethany. It's exciting, always a fun two weeks as we look at some of those things and kind of begin to plan our fall and what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be spending our time, and so I encourage you to, to think through those things next week. Luke 17, uh, beginning in verse 11, if you would stand with me, if you're able, as we read God's Word together in honor of our Lord as we look at this, the story of Jesus dealing with these, these lepers. In verse 11, Luke writes, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests and as they went, they were clean, cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. You may be seated. May you be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. And let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And we thank you for the ability that we have to, to praise you this morning and to worship you. And we pray that we would do so. We, we would worship you in both spirit and in truth. And we pray for our hearts to be very sensitive to your word this morning, and we pray that uh, you would be with, with those who are hurting. We pray that we would be a church that is in, enveloping them with your compassion, and we pray that we would have, have mercy on those who are hurting or the disenfranchised, the marginalized in society, and that they would respond with gratitude that leads to worship of you. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. When I was in junior high, or, or maybe it was even high school, I, I read a science fiction short story entitled, And Then There Were None. Same title as the novel by Agatha Christie, but, but a much different plot. And Then There Were None was written by Eric Frank Russell. And, and in this story, this, this ship from Earth arrives on this planet and lands. And it's a, a planet that was colonized 400 years ago by other people from Earth. And they arrive on this planet, and they, as they begin to interact with the people on this planet, they, they notice that they've developed a very unique economic system. Instead of using currency or instead of trading in valuable goods or developing some sort of system of, of barter, instead what happens on this planet is they, they base their economic transactions with one another on obligation. So in other words, one person does something nice for another or provides them a good or service, and, and that person has an obligation to provide something for them. And, and the way the economic system works is I might go and I might do something for you, or I might provide you the service, and, and now you have an obligation placed upon you to make sure that something happens to me, or I get some sort of good or service. And so you might ask a third party who owes you a favor to do something for me. And so there's this obligation-based economic system that develops on this planet. Now, in the short story, this science fiction story, it works great. Everybody loves this economic system. In fact, it works so well that the people that were on this spaceship that came from Earth decide they like this planet better than the planet they're from, and so most of them decide to stay, and then the spaceship goes back into space, and then there were none. No one was left on that spot anymore. That's the story. So you don't need to read it now, but uh, that's, that's kind of the economic system that develops. It's, it's based upon this obligation-based economic system. Works great in the story. I don't think it would work that well in real life. <laughs> I think 
in real life, it would be a very oppressive system, right? I mean, you do something for me, and now as you do that thing for me, now I have this obligation to somehow pay you back. And I think it would be oppressive as I try to think, okay, now who's done what for me, and, and why are they doing this? They're certainly not doing that because they, they like me. They're just doing this so that somehow I'll need to, to pay them back. And, and how do I know whether or not I've, I've paid them back enough or I've, I've showed enough gratitude? I think in our, our relationships, that sort of economic system would be very oppressive and, and take a lot of joy out of doing things for people. And yet, in our real-life relationships, sometimes we do operate on that ethical system. Someone does something for me, and, and now I feel uh, indebted to them. I need to somehow make sure I, I pay them back. And I think that's hurtful in human relationships, to, to do things for people, expecting them to do something nice for you, and, and you expecting to do something nice for someone who's done something for you. I think it's just a very detrimental thing in our human relationships, and it's also detrimental in our relationship with God, isn't it? A few years ago, when I was still on staff at, at Bethany Baptist in, in Peoria, I, I read a book with the staff there entitled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, by John Piper. And there was a chapter in that book entitled, Brothers, beware of the debtor's ethic. And it was a, a life-transforming, a ministry-transforming chapter for me to read. In that, story, in that uh, chapter, Brothers, beware of the debtor's ethic, what John Piper warns pastors of is, is this ethical-based system for our relationship with God. He describes it in a, another book, Future Grace. He writes this, The debtor's ethic says, Because you've done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you. This impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure and the gift and the goodwill of another. He did not mean for gratitude to be an impulse to return favors. If gratitude, listen to this, if gratitude is twisted into a sense of debt, it gives birth to the debtor's ethic, and the effect is to nullify grace. And so what happens is this, a person says, well, well, God has done so much for me, now I need to begin to, to do things for God. And I, I'm motivated to do things for God out of a sense of obligation. I must do these things. And there's a sense that as I do these things, I know I can never pay God back 100%, but maybe instead of owing him an infinity amount of of, of good works and obedience. Maybe I'll know, owe him like affinity minus a couple nice things. And I believe Piper is exactly right when he says the effect of that is to nullify grace. It means that we don't rightly understand God's grace toward us. If as we think about God's grace toward us, we say, oh, somehow I need to make sure I pay God back in some sense for the things that he's done, we don't rightly understand grace. In a church setting, this is what I thought about when I, when I read this chapter years ago. In, in a church setting, our temptation can be to motivate ourselves and motivate other people to do things based upon the debtor's ethic. I was a family pastor, I think, when I read this chapter for the first time in, in John Piper's book. And so I, I was in charge of motivating people to get involved in nursery. I mean, when you're trying to get people involved in nursery and children's church and Sunday school, the debtor's ethic is really tempting because, you know, people need to work in nursery. And so, look, hey, I know, uh, I know the, the nursery's coming up and we're doing a sign-up and, uh, you know, you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you. What's an hour a week? Huh? It seems to me like you probably should do that. I don't know. What do you think? Or we're getting ready to, to you know, uh, Kent mentioned that next Sunday night we're going to be talking about uh, the the, the building ministry and what's going on there, and, you know, how easy would it be? To, we need a lot of money. Stand up, hey, uh, you know, everyone in here, God has given you food and clothing and an amazing amount of, of physical resources. I think you need to think about paying God back. We need a lot of money. Give out of obligation. We'll take any money. Or we say, you know, we're beginning two services, and there's going to be more ministry opportunities. There's going to be ministry fair this, the next two weeks. You owe God. Pay him back through Bethany. It's tempting, right? 
It's tempting to slip into a debtor's ethic. Here's the problem. A person who attempts to pay God back doesn't rightly understand gratitude. They don't rightly understand grace. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. He says this in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has ever given God a gift? Because why? Verse 36 of Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forevermore. Amen. Whoever pays God back anything? No one. Why? Because everything we offer to God came from God. Every ministry that we do is a ministry that God enables us to do. And so as we do ministry, we don't get more uh, out of debt, we get more into debt. The debtor's ethic is damaging to our spiritual life because it doesn't glorify the grace of God in the way that you and I are called to do. You say, well, Daniel, are you saying gratitude's wrong? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Gratitude is the right response of the human heart to God's grace. But gratitude, and, and hear me out here, gratitude is not supposed to result in legalism. Gratitude, and here's the central idea I want you to grasp this morning, Gratitude results in worship, and worship leads to obedience. But gratitude is to result in worship. Gratitude, gratitude to God as we contemplate what he's done is to result in unrestrained worship of Jesus Christ. That's what gratitude should produce, and that's what we see here in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19 together. In that, that passage as we look at it together. So what I want to do is I want us to look first of all at this story. And in fact, before we actually get into verse 11, why don't you turn back just a couple chapters to Luke chapter 9. Let me kind of touch on some things. If you're joining us for the first time or you haven't been here in a little while, let me kind of remind you what's going on in the gospel of, of Luke. And when you come to Luke chapter 9, you begin a, a new section as you kind of come to the end of Luke chapter 9, some amazing things happen in, in, in 9 that are, some, are pivotal to understanding the rest of the gospel of Luke. So, for example, in verse 18, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's praying and talking to them, and he asks them in verse 18 of, of Luke 9, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some that one of the prophets of old is risen. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great Christological affirmation of Christ. He says, you're the, the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. And, and Jesus affirms that this is true. And then he tells them something astonishing in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. At this point, he reveals, yes, you're right, I am the Messiah, I am the, the promised one of God, and central to my ministry is my death. The culmination of my ministry is going to take place when I'm killed. And it's going to be the religious leaders who bring about that death. Then later in chapter 9, you have the, the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's Jesus with Moses and Elijah, verse 31. They appear in glory, and, and what are they, they talking about? Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. What, what subject is, is on their lips as they have this amazing moment where Jesus and his glory is revealed? Well, they're talking about his departure. They're talking about this, this coming departure that's going to take place at Jerusalem, his, his death. Then... The rest of the narrative, really from that point forward until you come to Jesus in Jerusalem, deals with Jesus traveling toward Jerusalem. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He begins to, to head to Jerusalem. And then you can turn back to chapter 17 as you turn there. Just notice there's other passages throughout 
Luke that describe Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. It says in verse uh, 38 of chapter 10, they're on their way. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 22, he's on his way going through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 13, 33, nevertheless, Jesus says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Luke 19, he's going to enter Jericho. In verse 11, he's going to say he's, he's headed to Jerusalem. And in uh, Luke 19, 41, he's going to arrive at the city. And as he sees it, he's going to weep over it. And so here in Luke 17, verse 11, we enter the story. And Luke reminds us, where is Jesus? He's on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to complete the task that the Father has set for him, the culmination of his ministry and really all of human history on the cross. He's headed toward Jerusalem, and as he heads toward Jerusalem, as we've noted throughout the Gospel of Luke as we've been in this section, he's not making like a beeline toward Jerusalem. He's making a very indirect route toward Jerusalem, and as he's going on his way, he's fulfilling his purpose, preparing for the cross, proclaiming the kingdom of God. As Jesus travels to Jerusalem on his rather indirect route, uh, he passes in between Samaria and Galilee. And we're not exactly sure where he was, but as he travels toward Jerusalem on this indirect route, he's traveling and he begins to enter into a village. And there in the distance, a little bit away from Jesus and outside the village, are ten lepers. Now, before they had leprosy, these ten lepers came most likely from different spheres of life. There were things that distinguished them from one another. This guy over here perhaps was a prominent member of the synagogue. This person was a tax collector and had, wasn't even allowed in the synagogue. This person over here was a, a person of, of very low means. This person over here was a very high member of society. There were ethnic differences between these ten lepers. And then leprosy struck, and now they're all united in the situation before them. They're all united in, in really a death sentence. Leprosy was a terrible disease. Leprosy, we call it today Hansen's disease. A leprosy was a, when you see the term leprosy in, in Scripture, it can describe various ailments, but here it's describing this, this Hansen's disease that is the most common term for, uh, for what we describe in leprosy in, in, in its terminal form here in Scripture. Uh, Hansen's disease, as we know today, is a bacteria that affects the nerves. It attacks the nerves and the extremities of the body. It attacks the internal organs. It attacks a person's eyesight. They become blind oftentimes. And as the the external nerves are attacked and and, and, and numbed, a person has no ability to to sense things or, or to feel pain. So a person with leprosy, a doctor has observed, doctors who've worked with lepers have observed, that they don't feel pain whenever they, they should feel pain. And it leads to the deterioration of their body. One doctor talks about how he was working with lepers, and a a leper reached into a a fire and pulled out a potato, not realizing that the damage that the the, the burning was doing to his flesh, totally unaware of what was taking place to his body. Doctors who've worked with with lepers have have noticed that that animals will come in and and eat away parts of their their flesh while they sleep, not even realizing what's what's taking place. It's just a, a terrible, debilitating disease. Those with leprosy in in Jesus' day suffer terrible physical effects from leprosy. These ten lepers know that death is in their future. And they suffer the humiliating physical effects of the disease as their bodies waste away. But not only is there a physical component to this disease... There's an emotional, a relational component to leprosy as well. Josephus, the historian, would say that, that lepers are like, like dead people. They're treated as dead men. In Leviticus uh, chapter 13, Moses says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and, and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so these, these ten lepers are, are treated like dead men. They're relationally separated from the rest of the community of faith, and they are there awaiting their death. 
united in this death sentence, isolated from the rest of the community. And as Jesus passes by them and enters into this village, the lepers begin to cry out, knowing who Jesus is. They say, Jesus! Master! That that term master is a phrase we don't see come from anyone else's lips in Scripture except these lepers and Jesus' disciples. Master, uh, Lord, uh, one who has authority, have have mercy on us, they cry to Jesus. And that that word mercy means means, uh, have an attitude of compassion, and in that compassion of your heart, act toward us. It's a cry that's given to one who has greater authority than ourselves, that has the ability to enact change in our lives. And so these lepers, as they see Jesus walking into the village, say, say, Master, you who have the ability, we need you to have compassion within yourself that will cause you to act graciously toward us. We are unable to enact change in our own life. We're desperate. Please help us. Have mercy. There needs to be compassion within you that compels you to act toward us. And Jesus sees the lepers, and he says to them very simply, go. Go and show yourselves to the priest. That was the regulation that Moses had given the people when they were cured of their leprosy, they were to go and show themselves to the priest, and the priest could declare them clean. And so that's what Jesus tells them to do. It would have been a, a several-day journey for them to go to the temple and, and find a priest and show themselves to them. And so for them to respond to what Jesus has told them to do requires a, a certain amount of faith. Jesus says this to these ten men, and these ten men perhaps have a little bit of a conference together, or perhaps they just simply turn and However, they decided at some point these ten lepers turn and they begin to make their way toward the priest, indicating that their heart believes that what Jesus has told them to do is the right thing to do. And as in that act of faith is demonstrated by their obedience, as that takes place, they're healed. Luke says that they're they're cleansed. And that's, that's the story, right? It is for nine of them. For nine of them, that's, that's the end of the story. They had a, an incredible physical ailment. They were uh, lepers. They were on their way to death. They cried out to Jesus, Master, have mercy. He had mercy, and they were healed. And if Luke was simply trying to tell us a story about Jesus' power, that would be the end of the story, right? But let me suggest to you, that's not the main point of this text. We already know that Jesus has the ability to heal lepers. He he did it in chapter 5. We know his power over the physical realm. Luke isn't trying to teach us just about Jesus' power. For nine lepers, that's the end of the story. Jesus has given them what they desire, and so they go on their way. And perhaps they say, well, we need to continue to be obedient and and go to the temple and show ourselves to the priest. But but there's no no compelling reason upon them to to turn around. That's not the case for one guy. And what I would suggest to you is the story is about this one leper, now former leper, right? Look again at the text. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. There's one leper who gets it. He understands that the physical healing that he's received has a deeper significance. And as he contemplates what's taking place within him, he realizes there's there's a greater need that he has and, and he responds with gratitude. And that gratitude compels him. You see, there's just like a compulsion that he has here to turn back around. And as he goes back toward Jesus, he's praising God with a loud voice. And so there's this, this exaltation, this, this emotional response that, that, 
that, that results in, in praise as he travels back to Jesus. He's praising God. He's exalting God. Verse 16, he falls down at Jesus' feet. He's contemplating the reality of what's taking place within his life. He's giving him thanks. And so there's kind of an interesting connection here, right? He's praising God, thanking Jesus. I don't know how much he understands at this point, but clearly he understands there's some sort of connection between God and Jesus. And, and, and he's thanking Jesus, praising God. And I don't know exactly how he pictures it in his mind, but for us, we understand that that's the right response, a response of worship to Jesus for the works of God. He, he gets at least part of that. The gratitude that he feels toward God compels him to engage in worship. Jesus sees this person fall down at his feet, giving him thanks. And Luke adds one more note at the end of verse 16. By the way, he was a Samaritan. By the way, this guy that was at the very margin of society due to the fact that he was a leper, I mean, you think about the hierarchy within Jewish society, a leper would have been toward the bottom. A Samaritan would have been below dirt. The person that responds with gratitude toward God flowing into worship is a person at the very very, very, very margin of society. Jesus looks down at him, and he asks three questions. Verse 17, looks down at, at this leper. Question number one, were not ten cleansed? Answer, yes. <laughs> Second question, where are the nine? What happened to the other? There's only one person here engaging in, in grateful worship. What happened to the other nine guys? Answer, I don't know. But for some reason, they weren't compelled by gratitude to engage in worship. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is their response wasn't the right response. The right response was the response of the Samaritan, formerly a Samaritan leper. Last question was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Answer, yes. This is the only guy. Then Jesus says, verse 19, and he said to them, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Is he talking about just the physical wellness that this person has now as a result of of his worship of God, his gratitude, his faith? No. I believe he's talking about a, a deeper spiritual wellness that this Samaritan experiences as a result of his faith. Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, let's talk about applying this story. Again, the, the main thing that I want you to grasp is that, that gratitude manifests itself in worship of Jesus Christ. It, it doesn't manifest itself in, in legalistic works and attempts to pay God back and attempts to, to earn God's favor. Uh, gratitude is to, supposed to manifest itself in unrestrained worship of Jesus Christ. Three applications that I want you to think through as you think about this story in relationship to your own spiritual life. Number one, number one, Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. In this story, there are ten lepers who are desperately aware of their own need for deliverance. Uh, Whitney and I just watched this um, kind of this eight-part miniseries. It was produced by BBC. It was an adaptation of Charles Dickens' novel, Bleak House. And in, in this novel, kind of the, the backdrop is that there are 
there's, there's this court system, the chancery court system in, in Great Britain, and, and uh, people will go to this court system pleading for mercy, and kind of the beginning of the novel talks about how people are going to this court system, and they have all these needs, and as it describes this court system, the chancery, it, it's a, a, a day in which there's mud, and there's, there's fog, and it's kind of a gloomy place. Dickens was never subtle, right? Uh, he kind of talks about how, how terrible things were, and, and there's this, this line at the beginning of the novel where Dickens writes, thus in the midst of the mud and the heart of the fog sits the Lord High Chancellor in his high court of chancery. People go to this court pleading for mercy, and there's the, these scenes in both the novel and the, the, the uh, film adaptation in which the, the chancellor is coming by or entering or leaving the room, and these people who are desperate for justice are crying out, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, except like with a British accent. It sounds really cool. And, um, and, and he's just ignoring them. People have been in this court system for years and have been pleading for justice and never receive justice. God isn't like that. You cry out to Jesus, 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 have mercy, have compassion on me that, that manifests itself and, and actions toward me. And, and what, how does Jesus respond? He gives it. Brothers and sisters, several, boy, like more than months ago, we were in Luke 5, and we, we dealt with leprosy, and we talked about how leprosy is a picture of sin. I don't know if you remember that. We talked about some of the parallels in Scripture between leprosy and, and sin, and we saw that just like uh, sin permeates us, leprosy permeates a person. So there's this physical leprosy that permeates a person's body, and, and sin permeates every aspect of who we are. I'm convinced that one of the most damaging things to a church is to fail to adequately, adequately understand the nature of sin. To adequately understand the nature of sin, the way that sin uh, permeates who we are, permeates our body and affects every aspect of our being. As we understand the reality of sin, we understand our need for God's mercy. 1 Kings 8.46, Solomon says, no one does not, there's no one who does not sin against God. Psalm 51.5, David would declare that he's a sinner from birth. Psalm 130, verse 3, 130, verse 3, the psalmist would say, if you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is, is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of, of the glory of God. Sin permeates our thoughts, our minds, our body. There's no aspect of our humanity that hasn't some way been tainted by sin. Like leprosy, sin permeates us, and, and like leprosy, sin not only permeates us, but it makes us an outcast. It, it isolates us from God. One of the most important verses, I think, to understand the gospel is 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. If you don't understand the reality of 1 Peter 3.18, you don't understand the gospel. First, you have to understand that, that Christ died for sins, that there was a need that you and I had, and that, that need was the fact that we were unrighteous, we were sinful. And so we understand that, and then we understand the righteous Christ died for the unrighteous. He died in our place. There was a substitutionary atonement we see in 1 Peter 3.18. And then he did it. Why? That he might bring us to God that you and I might be reconciled to God and brought into relationship with God once again. That's the gospel. Sin permeates our being, and we won't understand our need until we understand the reality of sin. And like sin, leprosy is, is numbing. Sin numbs us, and sin is deadly. At night, sometimes, our children will get scared or, or there'll be some sort of uh, sickness in the night. I, I don't know why kids don't get sick like at 5 o'clock in the evening, but for some reason our children decide to get sick or not feel well or get scared at 3 o'clock at night and, or in the morning. And so, um, you know, 
when my kids are there in their bed and they're not feeling well or there's been some sort of bump that, that, that freaks them out, um, what do they cry out? They don't cry out, Dad. You know what Dad would do? Come in the room. Yeah, what's wrong? Yeah, I don't see blood. Yeah, go to bed. Stop crying. Yeah, you feel sick? Go throw up. And then when you're done, tell me. No, in fact, don't come tell me. Just go back to bed, all right? Yeah. Or you just stay in the bathtub. I'm fine. I wouldn't really do that. I might not even wake up. What do my kids cry out? Mom! Hey, Mom! 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 Honey, I don't know what it is, but a kid needs you. <laughs> they probably want to tell you they, they love you or something. Isn't that sweet? They cry out to Mom. That's where, that's where mercy and help is found. A person who understands sin and the reality of sin, who do they cry out to? Jesus. Jesus, I, I need you. I've got this sin problem. I'm overwhelmed with the reality of sin in my life. I don't know what to do. Jesus! These lepers are at a point. There's no plan B for these lepers. The lepers don't go, hey, you know what? Either Jesus or we invent like a time machine and go in the future where leprosy will be dealt with. Jesus is it. And in that desperation, they cry out to Jesus, Master, have mercy. We need that, that aspect of your character that, that causes compassion, that causes uh, action. We, we need that to exist within you, and it does in Jesus. The same is true when it comes to sinners. They call out to Jesus. Jesus, I, I'm desperate. There's, there's no plan B here. I have no other way to deal with my sin except you. Help me. And Jesus does. Second thing, in terms of application, See God in his grace. See God in his grace. In order to experience gratitude, first of all, you have, to, you have to see that you had a need and that someone met it. You have to recognize, in addition to crying out, you have to recognize that that, that, that need has been met. And so often, I think that I fail to rightly express my gratitude to God because I don't always see his grace. Have you ever been around people that, that all they do is, or it seems like all they do is complain? That as you talk to them about, you know, how, how are things going? Everything they tell you is about something terrible that's going on or, or about how unfair life is, or, or just the injustice of their family, or, or how their work isn't going well because their boss isn't treating them right, or the kids at school are just, they're all jerks, and, and there's just a real negativity. I believe that that attitude of, of negativity causes us to not be grateful to God and His blessings as we ought to be. In fact, that attitude of negativity reveals that we don't have a heart of gratitude. It's interesting that Jesus did so much ministry with, with those who are at the margins of society, right? In fact, just, just think with me about some of the examples we've looked at through the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 7, we saw, the, the, we saw a story of, of several people on the margins. We saw a centurion, a, a God-fearer, who, who wasn't even a Jew yet, and, and he comes to Jesus for help and, and receives it. In Luke chapter 7, kind of beginning around verse 38, you saw this, this sinful woman, probably a person that had involved in, in prostitution or some sort of a sexual sins, and, and, and she comes to Jesus for help, and she's at the margins of society. People say, boy, if Jesus even knew you know, a tenth of the things that were true about her, he wouldn't even let her anywhere near him, and, and yet she comes to Jesus, and he knows everything, and, and she receives mercy, and she responds with gratitude. We see Zacchaeus, later we'll see Zacchaeus come to Jesus. We're going to see a criminal on the cross come to Jesus. These people at the margins of society come to Jesus, desperate, call out to him, and what do they receive? Grace. You know who comes to Jesus and doesn't receive grace? You know who comes to Jesus and, and, and desires things from him and, and, and doesn't get it? The rich ruler. 
He's not at the margins of society. He comes to Jesus in his self-sufficiency, wants Jesus to kind of like pat him on the back and say, good job, you're good to go, and, and doesn't get it and walks away disappointed. He contemplates the cost of doing what Jesus has told him to do. He contemplates the value of Jesus, and in his, in his status as a, a materially wealthy person says, yeah, not worth it, Jesus. We can learn a lot from the marginal people in society because as they receive the blessings of God, they see God's grace. And as they see God's grace in their lives, they respond with gratitude, and it's a gratitude that results in worship. And let me suggest to you this morning that if you're having a problem with gratitude and worship, maybe you're having a problem seeing God's grace, seeing his blessing on your life. Third thing that I want us to think through here as we think about applying this story, and this, is, this kind of ties into really the, the central theme, I believe, of this story. Number three, demonstrate gratitude through worship and not legalism. Demonstrate gratitude through worship, not legalism. Now, let me give you two cautions before we dive much into this third point. Um, the first caution is this. Be careful about calling someone else a legalist, okay? Sometimes a person will engage in a, in a conduct, and you look at them and say, well, that's kind of strict. They, they must be a legalist, right? That person... Uh, has decided not to watch TV, they're, they're a legalist, or that person wears a certain type of clothing, that, that person's legalistic. Or, it, it, be careful. Paul tells us uh, each person will stand or fall before their master. And one person who makes a decision to live in a certain way may be making that decision because they believe that's, that's the best way to live in obedience to God. And, and they're not doing it in order to earn God's favor, but they're saying, look, I desire holiness, and here's a temptation in my life, or here's something that I believe will keep me from being as close to God as I desire, and, and so I, I want it removed from my life. And so just because something might be a legalistic action for you doesn't mean it is for other people. And so be very careful about calling other people legalists. It's, it's a very dangerous road to travel down. Secondly, <laughs> in your own life, be very careful about um, lawlessness. <laughs> Sometimes we talk about grace, 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 and, and you know, I'm living under grace, and so we begin to pursue some things in our lives that, that aren't healthy for us. All things are lawful, but not all things are, are profitable. And so we aren't supposed to turn grace into lawlessness, grace into licentiousness. So that's my cautions, okay? Now, now on to the point, all right? Demonstrate gratitude through, through worship and, and not through legalism. There's a temptation to legalism as we contemplate God's grace. And we've talked about it again and again this morning. Our temptation is to attempt to, to pay God back. God has given me his grace, and, and now I'm going to live this life that, that begins to, to pay God back. Let me walk through some scriptures with you. And what I hope you see in these scriptures, in fact, begin turning to Psalm 107, if you would. Psalm at the very middle of your Bible, probably. Psalm 107. What we're going to see in these passages that we look at is that gratitude, it doesn't flow into works. Gratitude flows into worship and thanksgiving and praise. And then comes obedience and works. Let me, let me describe it this way. Sometimes we say, okay, here's gratitude, and now right after gratitude comes works. And what that is, is that that's missing a step. Here's gratitude, and gratitude flows into worship and praise and thanksgiving and falling down at Jesus' feet. And from that worship and that joy comes obedience. But that obedience has nothing to do with paying God back. It's not motivated by, by gratitude, ultimately. It's motivated by worship. And joy. And, and, and by the way, as you're obedient and you experience the joy in that, there's greater gratitude and greater worship and greater obedience. And then after that, Psalm 107. 
Psalm 107, the psalmist is, is talking about the, the grace of God. Verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He's good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then it talks about the disobedience of, of people. And verse 14 says, He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and, and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, His wondrous works to the children of man. He shatters the door of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. You see what happened? Need, recognition of need, crying out to God for his mercy. He sent out his word, verse 20, and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So here's, here's need, crying out to God, God meeting need, gratitude, verse 21. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. You see what's happening there? Need, crying out to God, deliverance, worship, joy, obedience. Gratitude to God doesn't result in some legalistic, well, let me tell of the great deeds of the Lord, and then I'll get involved in ministry. No, it's, it's joy. It's gratitude. It's, it's thanksgiving. It's praise. Psalm 116. Turn a couple psalms over. Verse, Psalm 116, verse 1. I serve the Lord because I must. No. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Verse 8, you delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Go down into verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And notice there, the sacrifices that he's offering there aren't these legalistic requirements. I will offer my sacrifices because Moses says I have to. I'm obeying the law. No, the Lord delivered me. I love the Lord. I, I love to be in his presence and proclaim what he's done for me. And now in the presence of all the people of God, I'm going to be able to declare that. I'm going to be able to praise the Lord. Do you see what gratitude should produce? Joyous worship, not legalism. You say, well, how, how do I know not legalism? I'm glad you asked. That's the next point. Turn with me to the New Testament, if you will. Two passages that I want us to look at, look at, not look like. We want to look like something different. Colossians 2. If you're in the New Testament, uh, you go past the Gospels, past uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then you come to the book of Colossians. If you get to the T books in the New Testament, you've gone too far. Colossians 2. In fact, this may be the only passage we have the time to get to. But I want you to see that the contrast between legalism and worship, legalism and, and thanksgiving. Colossians 2, verse 6 says, Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in what? Abounding in thanksgiving. Okay? So as you think about God's work in your life, as you think about how you've received Jesus Christ, and continue to walk the Christian life, it should be a life of thanksgiving. If, I, if you walk out of the, of the service this morning and someone squeezes you, thanksgiving should pop out. Okay. I don't recommend that, unless you know them really well. Or you'd like to, to get to know them more. Verse 6. Now watch out, see to it that no one takes you captive or deceives you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions 
according to elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And then, he goes, then it's like he can't help himself. And he goes on about who Jesus Christ is some more. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And, the, and the, you've been filled in him who's the head of all rule and authority. And in him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without human hands by the putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, were, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Okay, so there's this beautiful picture painted here. You were dead in trespasses and sin. God saved you. He delivered you through Jesus Christ. In him all the fullness of deity dwells. There's this beautiful picture, this amazing picture of how you're to continue to walk in obedience through joy in Jesus Christ. Sin's been dealt with by God. Now here's the alternative. The alternative that that worship and that contemplation of the glory of God is legalism. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and of drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. He goes on, he says, if Christ died, Christ, the Messiah in him you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? As if you were still alive in the world, you submit to its regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, don't touch. These have an appearance of wisdom, verse 23, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of what? No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Another passage you can write down if you're taking notes is in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, you'll see the same contrast between thanksgiving and worship and obedience and the contrast with that and legalism. Gratitude in the life of the leper resulted in worship. Gratitude in the life of the believer is to result in worship as well. As we saw, I just want to close with this again to meditate upon this. Romans chapter 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid for to him, from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness that you have shown toward us, and we respond with grateful worship of you as we contemplate your glory. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.